Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Tuesday, May 19th. Before I read through the day's news as well as get to another edition of Technique Tuesday with our friends from My Tennis HQ, I have to let all of you know that these podcasts are made possible due to the extraordinary contributions from our friends at Midwest Sports. And you know this by now because for more than 20 years, Midwest Sports has served as one of the world's premier tennis equipment suppliers, and it's because they offer a comprehensive selection of fast shipping tennis supplies that few retailers can match. They also have one of the largest in-stock inventories of tennis equipment online with tens of thousands of products available for shipping directly from their automated warehouse to your front door. They value innovation and have personally tailored their products to highlight your skills on the court, and maybe it's been a while for you. You don't know exactly what your game would need right now equipment wise to accentuate the features maybe where once power came easy to you the shoulders not quite what it once was or maybe you've been hitting the weight room maybe you've been hitting that hundred push up a day challenge at home during quarantine and you maybe need to string your racket a little bit looser or a little bit tighter to account for that brand new power the good news is the well-trained staff at Midwest Sports are intimately familiar with all of their equipment and can help you find that perfect tennis racket perfect tennis shoe or perfect Perfect tennis clothing that is sure to put you ahead of the competition. Their selections of equipment are consistently first to market, and they pride themselves in stocking their tennis warehouse with the newest prices, uh, the newest products, excuse me, at the lowest prices. And here's how you can get involved. You go to their website, MidwestSports.com. But of course, you already knew that because you've known about Midwest Sports for years by now. But what maybe you didn't know is there's a way for you to get 15% off your order. That's by using our promo code CR15. Not only will you get 15% off as well as let them know that, hey, I heard from Cracked Records that this is the place to go and you can let them know we sent you there. Uh, But above all else, with all of your shipments, you use that promo code CR15. You'll get a brand new can of Wilson tennis balls. So whenever you are ready to make your return to the court, you have all you need to ensure that you have the maximum tennis playing experience. So go to MidwestSports.com. Be sure to use that promo code CR15. Get 15% off all of your purchases. We are so grateful for their continued support of our podcast. The least we can do is ask you listeners to go support them as well. MidwestSports.com. The promo code is CR15. Now, with that in mind, let's get into today's news. And it'll be a briefer news segment. We've gone into these stories so much at depth. I really focus focused on all of the news about the tournament, you know, the tour delaying through the end of July and all of the details that have emerged from the player relief fund on yesterday's mini break podcast. I've also had the chance recently on the Great Shot podcast to talk to two insiders in terms of, you know, learning the business of professional tennis. We talked to Sports Business Journal's Brett McCormick last week to learn a little bit more about what it'll be like when professional tennis comes back 
we ask him, you know, is it feasible for some of these events to play without fans? What are the expenses look like for these tournaments? How much revenue would they make if they're only getting the bills from the media side, from their, you know, selling of the rights of their event? And, you know, spoiler alert, but for a lot of events, it's not profitable. It's not worthwhile to come back if they can't have fans actually attending the events. But, you know, some events can, and we distinguish between the two. We get into the nuances with Brett. We also had the chance to sit down with a former ATP CEO in Mark Miles. He was the CEO, I believe, from 1990 through 2005. And look, all of these WTA ATP merger talk discussions, the uh, mechanics of getting a player relief funding package out, coordinating amongst the various events to get that money to the players. Uh, he knows what that process looks like. And if you want an inside look, you should definitely go check out that Great Shot podcast. Again, both of those podcasts on the Great Shot podcast feed. Uh, but in today's news, we learned a little bit more uh, because obviously, uh, for those of you been listening, you may be aware the player relief fund really targeting those players ranked between 101 and 500 in the singles rankings, about 50, I believe, to 125 in the doubles rankings. And there are a lot of players whose rankings fall outside that category for various reasons, whether they've just never been able to break through or they're a young player playing their first tournament, a former college guy, someone coming back from injury, whatever it may be. Well, the good news is the ITF is in the process of finalizing a range of additional measures to support stakeholders impacted by COVID-19, including a relief fund to help tour players ranked 501 to 700 not covered under other relief program. Uh, the statement goes as follows. Uh, you know, Further details of all stakeholder support schemes will be announced following the ITF board meeting scheduled for June 2nd. From Dave Haggerty, they're doing everything within our power to ensure that the talented players players climbing the ITF pathway receive the support they need and continue their development during these uncertain times. Many professionals and organizations in the tennis world have been significantly impacted by this hiatus in our sport due to COVID-19. It's not a simple blanket approach, and this takes time. The ITF is reviewing all feasible and appropriate options to provide support where it is most needed amongst our different stakeholders. So what does that tell you? A, you know, clearly details from the press relief have drawn criticism. The players 100 through, you know, 101 through 500 are getting relief in singles. But what about everyone else? Because there are so many players and the further down you get on the list, the usually the higher the need is for some sort of financial relief. But of course, tennis has to be realistic. There's not an endless pool of money. It's not just, you know, one blank check that they can write out however much they need to to all of these players to float them through that. There are financial realities all of these organizations live within. Um, but, you know, this is the ITF saying, hey, we're aware that it's not a good look to leave this many players hanging to dry. We're doing our best. But, you know, the quote of it is not a simple blanket approach and this takes time. Uh, this takes time. That means they're getting creative. They're not exa- exactly sure where the money's coming from, how much money they're going to be able to get to all of these various parties and various uh, stakeholders, as they call them. Uh, but they're doing their best. And, you know, this is another signal of that. And, of course, we will continue to monitor this story. Uh, because there are so many players out there who are seriously in desperate need of financial relief. And, you know, the ITF is certainly one of the organizations with a mechanism to get that relief out to players. So this is certainly something we will be continuing to monitor. And, of course, if you want to learn more about the ATP and WTA Tour Relief Funds, excuse me there, double hiccup, my bad, go check out at Open Court. It's Stephanie Miles. She wrote an article sort of detailing 
what the player relief funds look like now, how much money is allocated to what sort of players and how that uh, amount of money is being determined, who's determining those amounts, uh, what the paycheck is going to look like, where the money is coming from. It's a really well-written piece, gets into the intricacies, the nuances of these player relief funds. And of course, you can find it all again at Open Court on Twitter. That's Stephanie Miles. It's a very good piece. I know all of you will enjoy, so be sure to go check that out. I believe it's a WordPress article, so I think you'd have to find it on her Twitter account, but even if you don't have a Twitter account, uh, and although if you're listening to this podcast, you probably do, uh, but if you don't, you know, you can still find, uh, you can still log on to Twitter, find this link without having one, so again, it's at Open Court Stephanie Miles, the piece, ATPWTA, finalized player relief schemes as ITF promises help for those outside the top 500. Uh, switching gears a little bit now, because we have had, on multiple occasions, World Tennis, uh, World Team Tennis CEO Carlos Silva come on our show to talk, you know, about the state of world team tennis. And when we spoke to him last, he was optimistic, you know, cautiously optimistic. Those were his words that they were going to be able to play the 2020 season. And as of now, all systems look like they're a go for this world team tennis season. Carlos Silva in a call today with the AP, and this is a story I got through ESPN.com, saying the league is, quote, still on track for July 12th to open its three-week season. They're hoping to select a site this week. It's not going to be nine different cities. It's going to be located in one location. It sounds like they've got narrowed it down to four different cities, Texas, Florida in the mix. Of course, the reason they're able to do this in July is they're not sanctioned by the ATP, the WTA, the ITF, so they are allowed to make their decisions outside of that. And their goal would be picking one host city for all nine teams as opposed to playing, as I mentioned, around the country. You know, they're monitoring with local officials, with other sporting events, other teams uh, and leagues that have tried to play professionally to see what they're doing, what mechanisms they're using to ensure all the players remain safe and healthy. And of course, you know, Carlos Silva is as clever as a guy as you'll find. There's not going to be an option he overlooks. There's not going to be an option he ignores. He's going to try and explore every avenue to ensure the season gets uh, played. That's why he's such an excellent uh, influence on our beloved game of tennis for world team tennis in particular. So a little piece of good news for all of us looking forward to live tennis results who, you know, like the exhibitions, but, you know, want to see maybe a slightly higher stakes and certainly world team tennis gets more and more exciting with each season so that's a little bit of good news a little bit of bad news for all of those USTA Midwesterners out there of course that's the district the region I should say I used to compete in this year's Midwest closed postponed to November 7th through 9th going to be played combined with the fall closed uh, because of that you know there's the changes that played nationwide the Midwest section is allowed to host only one national level three this year since the events moved inside the draw size has been uh, decreased to 64 uh, that sucks because the Midwest Close was the event you look forward to all junior year long, regardless of your level. If you were someone who was playing in the Midwest, because that's the Super Bowl of Midwest junior tennis. And if you qualified, you had success there. It means you were on the right path. And so, you know, of course, that's so devastating for so many juniors across the country. Uh, as someone who lives in Indianapolis now, would I have gone and checked out all of the action at North Central High at Park Tudor because I've played there as well? Uh, of course, I would have been drawn there, would have gone and seen Presley in action at 
at the very least. Uh, but so that's, you know, upsetting, of course, but it's just the reality we live in. But let's switch gears here. All good news, and then we'll get to Technique Tuesday. Congratulations to all of those Division One men's and women's players who were nominated and won ITA Regional Playing Awards. Of course, if you want to hear more about some of from some of the recent All-Americans, go check out our Cracked Interviews podcast. Ashley Leahy, Alexa Graham, two of the best in Division One women's tennis, both on the podcast as of late. We've got more coming, so be on the lookout for all that. In fact, I believe today the Michaela Gordon pod with Stanford's Michaela Gordon, three-time All-American now as well, uh, will be posted. So hopefully all of you college fans have gone and checked that out. And for those of you college tennis fans listening to today's podcast, be sure to go read Colette Lewis's piece on tennisrecruiting.net about you know, an SEC gender trailblazer, Roberta Allison Baumgardner, became the first woman in Southeast Conference history to play a varsity sport when she joined the Alabama men's tennis team in 1963. She went 13-5 and while competing for that team. Again, Colette, one of the best writers in the business, probably, you know, one of the central reasons why I am as into tennis as I am is because I grew up reading everything she wrote on her ZooTennis.com blog. Uh, she wrote this piece for TennisRecruiting.net. It's fascinating. I don't want to give it away. All of you listeners, take the time. We all have five, ten minutes in our day to go read a fascinating, well-researched, well-written piece of uh, tennis content from Colette Lewis. And if you don't like that, maybe you'll want to read about uh, Matt, from Matt Fitzgerald his piece on Dominic Team, who he caught up with. They talk about the Australian Open 2020 his development, playing Nadal in Paris. He also talked to people around Dominic Team. Obviously, Dominic Team, a guy who has been in turmoil is the wrong word, but has certainly been a part of the larger conversation of late, given his thoughts on the player relief fund. Uh, and of course, you know, that's one of our brethren, Matt Fitzgerald, for tennis.com. So be sure to go check that out there. Uh, also, Matt Willis at the racket. If you, you know, high percent chance you've seen Matt at Matt Racket <clears throat> on tennis Twitter, if you're a Frequent user, uh, he you know recently tennis channels re-airing that fifth set between Nadal and, and uh, Medvedev from last year's U.S. Open. He is currently in the midst of, or I should say, he reposted his fifth set breakdown from that match. It's a fantastic read and from a fantastic match that I myself was watching the other night. Um, uh, coincidentally, of course, but I think all of you will enjoy that as well. And then last but not least, Baseline Tennis writing today that Jeannie Bouchard raises 85 k to help those in need during the pandemic. She offered a seat in her player's box, signed gear, dinner, and the monies will go directly to No Kid Hungry. Uh, it will go to Feeding America. It will go to Meals on Wheels. And it will, of course, go to Jose Andres' World Central Kitchen as well. So shout out to her. Uh, but that'll do it for today's news. Of course, we've also got a wonderful edition of Technique Tuesday that I won't make you wait any longer for. So without further ado, here's my conversation with my Tennis HQ's Austin Rapp, breaking down the reasons why you need to be careful but also proceed uh, frequently, I will say, in going down the line while playing tennis. That conversation right after this.
Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Joining us for another edition of Technique Tuesday, you of course know him as a former All-American for the UCLA Bruins, someone with a top 700 rankings in both the ATP singles and doubles rankings, and of course one of the co-founders of our friends at My Tennis HQ, Austin Rapp. Welcome back to the show. How are you doing tonight? Doing good. Thanks for uh, having me back on, Alex. It's, it never uh- gets old talking to you. No, it's always a pleasure. Every so often, I get sick of crew, so I'm like, let me get Austin tonight. No, yeah, exactly. That's exactly how it looks, listeners behind the scenes. That's how we determine who comes on each week. Um, but no, I, I mean, all is well with you. All is well at my tennis HQ. I see another uh, streak of articles coming out from you guys. Yeah, we're back on the content grind. We got through the um, interviews and all that, and now we're we're grinding out the articles again. So it's good. It's all good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that, yeah. Of course, I saw you guys join the Twitter sphere. That's good news. Yeah, we just started. There's a there's actually a good following. Uh, not that we have yet, but uh, you know the the, the tennis uh, kind of sphere of Twitter. So we wanted to get in there. Yeah, it's a uh, vibrant community. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. Some... It's it's good. I mean, that's where I get like almost all of my tennis news on Twitter. So uh, we we wanted to sneak in there. My tennis HQ. Yeah, you guys, us, all the players for the player relief details, we all find it out on Tennis Twitter. Um, So, yeah, it's a great place to be. I'm not going to lie. I I saw it immediately. I threw you guys a follow. I was a little nervous I wasn't going to get the follow back, but I did, (laughs) uh, just to clarify. And so I appreciated that. And, of course, you know, I wanted to have you back on so we could talk about another one of your articles today. But I do want to talk about some of the think pieces you guys have posted. And I talked about it a little bit with Carew last week. You guys had Martin Redlicky come on and write about his thoughts on the player relief fund, the need for it, what that money would go towards. You also had David Fox on as a guest writer to write about the futures level, why futures level winners should be awarded challenger wild cards. Can you talk a little bit about that article and you know why you guys are giving people this forum to speak on these issues? Yeah, so uh, that section of the website is called the, prop- uh, the Pro Positions uh, page. <laughs> it's a little play on words there. Um, but yeah, I basically, uh, we wanted to start that because when crew and I were on tour, we were finding, um, that, you know, you, you sit around, you have a lot of time and all the guys are brainstorming up ideas. Oh, this sucks. Oh, this could get better. Oh, why is this not this way? And I figured, Hey, why not have a place, a platform where these guys can speak up, you know, uh, give their ideas some light and, I think as long as that platform's there, it's on the players um, to to go forward with what they've been saying and kind of put it on paper. Um, a few a few guys have, and a few guys are working on pieces now. So uh, the two that we've published so far, I was pretty happy with how they came out. Uh, just something to get the conversation going about these things, right? I mean, uh, Karu and I have different views about things, and uh, we have the same views about some other things, and, you know... For example, Marty and I have differing views on this relief package, um, but I'm all ears when it comes to what he has to say, and I'm going to post it 
however he writes it. So I think it's a good I think it's a good little section to just get some conversation going. No, I, I thought this Challenger wildcard idea was fascinating. And, you know, I'm curious where you stand on this because from one perspective, the difficulty of ascending the ranks in tennis, spending enough time in the futures, accumulating enough points given the disparities at the various level tournaments, uh, it's very difficult to climb the ranks, obviously. And so many players have talked about why it's almost financially not feasible to do that, to have to travel across the country, chasing points, chasing tournaments to get to the next level. This idea here that, you know, I believe the wildcard guidelines, and I'm reading from the article, 25K winners and runner-ups get Challenger 90 main draw wildcards uh, and Challenger 80 for the 15Ks uh, winner. You get an 80 main draw wildcard, a 15K runner-up gets a qualifying wildcard. You know, there's two arguments, right? The idea that if you accumulate enough points, which it's possible to do, you will ascend the ranking. So you'll get Mm -hmm. your chance to play Challengers. Where do you fall on this idea of, you know, granting wildcards? cards to winners getting them earlier opportunities and just where do you stand on wild cards in general well first of all i liked uh david's thought behind it um that's something that i think a lot of people can get behind that these wild cards should be earned in some way you know how you have Mm -hmm. the the kalamazoo winner gets into the u.s open or uh the ncaa singles and doubles winners as long as they're fully american teams get into the u.s open or, you know, all, all, some of these Masters 1000 events and uh, things like that, they have earned wild cards. And I think that's something that everyone can get behind. Um, I, the thing I didn't really agree with David on is um, the way he would allocate those wild cards. And I, I don't know personally exactly how I would do it, but uh, there are some kinks that would need to be worked out with the way that he, he would structure it. Um, but look, I mean, this is my general idea. So if you have a guy who gets hot, uh, wins a a future or two, he is most likely playing at the level where he can hang in a challenger. He can, he can take down those guys and give him the opportunity, but the, the way that the rankings work, because it's a year long, it doesn't necessarily your ranking doesn't necessarily reflect the level that you're playing in a given month so that's why i think the players who earn they they should earn that right from the futures and if they're able to win they should get at least a crack or um you know two if they win two tournaments at the next level and it's not the end of the world if if they go and they lose in that challenger then right back to the futures it's not a big deal they they go back with that experience and um you know that motivation to just keep climbing the rankings yeah and you know this gets back to so many of the organizational some would say structural flaws in professional tennis because for those listeners not aware of how the wild card process works they're almost entirely at the discretion of the people who are hosting the event when it's a grand slam it's at the discretion of that hosting federation the USTA that's why they're able to give wild cards to the college winner to uh, the Kalamazoo winners now uh, all of the big four um, grand slam hosting or uh, uh, organizations, federations have come together to grant those wild cards through various Challenger Series events. Some of my favorite competitions uh, come during those wild card series events. The Challengers they play, you know, Savannah and Sarasota on the clay, mm-hmm. and a couple of others, and of course the summer ones for the U.S. Open as well. And the at the end of the year one, Champagne and Charlottesville, uh, I think Knoxville and maybe Tallahassee, or maybe just Knoxville, no Tallahassee. Uh, again, this is what I do with my life. I'll 
Austin. Uh, those are some of the best events is when you get to see those guys down the home stretch of the season. I mean, Riley Opelka catapulted his way into the top 100 at the end of 2018 by doing so well at those last three challenger events, mm-hmm. rode that momentum to get into the New York Open. He wins that event. He's off to the races. It can work yep. that quickly, and that's the benefits of a wild card system, especially a merit-based system now to get back to it to pull off the sort of coordination it would require too because uh, again David's point here is that it should be on the player he has to inform the you know the ITF hey I'm using my wild card at this event beforehand and to get that coordination to get that permission when there are so many different you know invested interests in each individual event that's just going to be difficult to do but the idea of a merit-based wildcard system makes a lot of sense, and you talked about it, ranking not always reflecting level of play. You know, in the first mm-hmm. six months of a season, you don't even look at the ranking. You look at the race to the year-end finals because that's the best approximation of how players have performed during the year. And I just, I do think because, you know, I, what was it, last year? You see just these trips, and I think this may be a bad example, and if I'm wrong, I apologize, but Skanderman Suri, I'm pretty sure, went to Tunisia or Turkey yeah. and won, like, yeah, four futures Tunisia. events. Yeah, Six. and he wins, yeah, or six futures events in a row, right? Mm-hmm. And it's like, yeah. at that point, what are we doing? Like, it, it really, right. it, it's going to take him that long to advance up a level? Or, you know, you see some of these guys come out from college and, you know, uh, you look at a guy like JJ or a guy like Torpin, they were fortunate enough to get wild cards into challengers early and they did well right away. You shouldn't have to be fortunate to get the wild card. There should be some mm-hmm. sort of merit-based system. The problem is agreeing on anything and it's just going to, it would always be difficult. Sure. Uh, I mean, you bring up a really good point with Skander, and I've talked to him about this. Uh, we traveled a week together, and you know, he he started out coming out of college. Obviously, he he probably had some kind of ranking. Uh, I don't know exactly what, but this was when the whole tour was changing, and they had the ITF reserved spots and the challengers and all that. Um, but I mean, if you think about <laughs> winning six futures in a row, is that's not yeah. easy for, for hardly anyone. If, if you really had to take even guys in the top 200 to go out and win six futures in a row is, um, you know, that's tough. So obviously you have to be able to say after two or three in a row there, he's playing at a challenger level. There's no arguing that. So instead of having to grind uh, through three more of those or, you know, grinding the traveling and the money and all that, I think that he should have at that point earned the right to go to a challenger to and show his level. Um, yeah, I, I think that's a perfect example. So to your point there, though, that the system you're recommending sounds a little bit like what the ITF tried to execute in the transition tour and I don't think anyone would say that was a success, and there are multiple yeah. reasons why. Communication and the haste to implement it and the translation from the former tour to the way they wanted things to be, it all got lost in the shuffle. Well, but it does, well, but, but wasn't so, that the, you know, but that was the attempt, right? Sorry to talk over you, please. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, go. No, 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 that, that was my point. It's just, uh, you know, that was what they were trying to do, something like that sort of, right? Well, here's the difference. I mean, they were basically getting to the point where those spots became so scarce that at the start you really had to be top 10 ITF in the world to get one of those spots. Um, because if you thought, think, okay, there's four challengers in a given week and there's three ITF spots, those, those top yeah. 12 guys in the world, they're going to, what are they going to be doing? They're obviously going to be wanting to go play the challengers any, any chance they get. 
So what it ended up happening is these guys, you basically had to be top 20 ITF in the world and you had to have won six futures or something like that to get that shot. So this system that David is talking about, and I think a lot of people can get behind, it it gives more opportunity to the guys who are playing well at that moment. I go yeah. out at whatever rank, 680, and I get hot for a week, and I win a 25K. Okay, the next week I get to play the challenger because let's be honest. I mean, the weeks that I'm losing – uh, the first round in 15s, I'm not playing at a 680 level, but if I go out and win a 25K, I'm playing way above that 680 level, right? So it, ranking doesn't necessarily uh, show how well a player is playing in, in a given moment, and um, that this system would would help uh, just, just give more opportunity to the guys who are playing well. Mm-hmm. The other problem was also, you know, what they did with the rankings points, right? Because ITF transition events didn't sure. become ATP rankings points, and that was a problem within itself. But no, I, I completely agree with you. There should be a way to recognize someone who's playing well that immediately and get them to, you know, there's just a, the, a waste of time is the wrong word, but, you know, you know when a guy's ready to make that jump and there should be mm-hmm. some sort of mechanism to facilitate that i suppose quicker although then there's the idea that you know right now tennis is the ultimate meritocracy you have to grind you know unless you're well i guess the idea is the privileged few get the wild cards right and it's what about Mm -hmm. everyone else so it's about making it a little bit fairer on that subject but again i would say the whole premise of the article is a success because we just spent an unintended you know (laughs) 10 minutes on the topic and so i would again highly recommend uh everyone go to mytennishq.com read david fox's pete's uh few Future level winners should be awarded challenger wild cards. Here's why. It's a really well written argument, and you know certainly we would love to hear where any of you fall in that argument. But the reason I wanted to have you on the show tonight, Austin. By the way, there's our tangent. We wondered what it was going to be, um, but it's to talk about your latest article for my tennis HQ. And you know, you guys got back to instructional stuff, which is you know why we always want to hear from players with your level of experience. And you broke down three key factors of going down the line let's start where we always start why was this the topic you went with so uh i guess i wanted to write an article because i've been coaching a few juniors and the main reason the main mistake that i see them making is just shot selection uh too impatient um maybe not going for it on the right balls just kind of mindlessly choosing if they should go cross court down the line uh this or that so i wanted to write an article on the things that I've been telling them and uh, kind of just explain those things. Do you make your students read your articles? Be honest. I don't make them, no. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we've had a, we've had a couple crew and I <laughs> work with one family and we, we've had them go over a few things because, um, yeah, a few, of, a few of the students in that family are, uh, you know, they struggle with certain things here and here and again and we'll just send them an article real quick. But no yeah. no forced reading. <laughs> That's the problem now. So I will just be in my casual life. And, you know, when you're doing casual things, do do I really want to be talking tennis? Well, the answer is yes, because that's why I do what I do. But, you know, sometimes I'm like, all right, I don't really want to hear this. And someone will be like small talk. They'll be like, oh, what's Federer up to? And I'll be like, well, <laughs> if you want to hear more about what I think on Federer, go listen to the podcast I do yeah. every day because I literally spent 30 minutes on it. So it would be, it's almost it's impossible. not. Yeah, exactly. So it's impossible not to plug it. 
Um, but no, so in terms of going down the line, because it's such a fascinating thing, right? It's probably the prettiest looking thing you can do on a tennis court when it's whether it's taking a ball early, redirecting pace down the line, or just taking that big spontaneous, you know, that curious forehand slap down the line, or Federer, you know, hitting that perfect on the rise forehand down the line, Rafa lacing it on the run forehand pass around the corner down the line. It, you know, pejoratively, it's the sexiest stroke in tennis. And so, you know, in your dealing with young students, how difficult is that balance between, because you talk about it all the time, the importance of shot selection, the importance of playing the percentages. What are, I suppose, the percentages on the down the line play? I mean, like I talked about in the article, it just depends on uh, where you're making contact with the ball and how that ball was hit to you. So, what I mean, you make a good point. You know, you see um, Federer, Djokovic, Stan hitting, ripping these 90 mile an hour winners up the line, and they're really successful with it, but they're damn good, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, you know, I, I kind of say to my students, if if you get to be as good as they are, then do whatever you want. But for now, <laughs> let's stick to the percentages and let's let's try to win matches by being solid. Um, mm-hmm. you can, you can be flashy, but it still counts for one point. So, uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, that's kind of my take on it. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Yeah, no, again, tell that to Max Rothman, please. But um, in terms of, you know, you write it in the article, uh, it's not, the down the line is not a one size fit all. There's never going to be, you know, there are some scenarios that may present themselves, but there's never the perfect opportunity to go down the line. You have a number of factors you need to weigh. What are the things that we, you talk about when executing a down the line shot sh- a player should be considering before making that decision? Yeah, so I talked about it a little bit before, but number one is your own court positioning. Uh, if you're far behind the baseline, inside the baseline, or you know in the middle of the court or off the court towards the alley, that's the first thing that you need to consider. The second is where your opponent is. So if your opponent is way far off the court and you want to go to the open court, that might change some things. Or if they're in the middle, um, you know the, the margins get smaller. And then the third is how the ball was hit to you. So uh, if your opponent's way off the court and they slap it down the middle real fast, uh, that can be a factor. If it's slow, high, and deep, that's also a factor. Um, Short, low, whatever it is, uh, those things matter a lot. So just staying within yourself and staying within your margins. Those are that's basically the overlaying idea for those three factors mm-hmm. so let's start with factor one would you say the most common error is the on the run slap down the line missed wide missed long <laughs> just missed in general I, yeah that's that's a that's definitely a big one and um a, a lot of the reason even if you do make it let's say you're six feet behind the baseline and off the court you slap it line all of a sudden the whole other side of the court's open and you haven't given yourself any time to recover 
So I see I see that one a lot too. They think, oh, that's just too good, but it's really not. You know, you you hit one good ball and all of a sudden you're off the court. Uh, mm-hmm. So so that's that's one of the most important ones for sure. Yeah, I also think the on the run pass definitely feels the best. I mean, definitely feels the <laughs> best when you execute it well. But it's probably the hardest of the passes just because the margin for error is so small. Um, I mean, yeah, it, it's a tough shot to hit because, again, you know, in terms of your opponent's positioning, it does take time away from your opponent. But the flip side of that is it also offers you less time to cover the rest of the court, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So I talk about that if you do feel the need to go up the line and you're on defense, just give yourself a little bit more shape and more margin and uh, yeah, it could, it could work better. Mm-hmm. You talked about, uh, you know, using it to disrupt a pattern. That's the defensive version of the down the line shot, right? When you're using it as mm-hmm. a disruptor, as opposed to going for a winner. Yeah. Defensive or neutral. Uh, <laughs> I, I talk about my own pattern that I try to get out of when I'm playing is my backhand's my much better side, my forehand, uh, more errors and, um, you know, just a little bit less consistent, but I use it. So if I'm in an exchange, a lot of guys try to target and go cross court forehands with me, I'll get out of it by going line with my forehand, but obviously it's my weaker side. If I try to tag it up the line, it's really low percentage. So I've learned to, if I get it high and deep up the line, then I'm back into a pattern that I like with my backhand. Yeah, no, I think we have that in common. Yours probably looks a little bit better than mine, but for sure, <laughs> that's the move. And I mean, I grew up, you know, I also grew up against a lefty, and so I'm just so used to playing from that back inside. But yeah, to your point, it, it's a great way to change things up, right? And just open up the, you know, get yourself back into the center of the court, I should say. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. there's also something too, if you go big up, you know, not big up the line, but defensive up the line, uh, it sort of limits the options for your opponent, right? Because you have so much of the court covered yeah and it that's a so in the example that i talk about with my own forehand if i hit that forehand up the line the righty has that backhand and a lot of times what i found is they're uncomfortable staying and hitting that one back up the line so they'll go cross and now i'm in a pattern that i like it's, it's just all these things and like like i say it's not one size fits all. It's always going to be different. You're and depending on who you're playing, how you're feeling on a certain day, it's it's always going to be different. So, uh these are just guidelines and something to keep in mind. Yeah, and the other idea is just to throw things off. I know I play my best tennis when because I like to pepper the backhand cross court and just work that side, but then when I can keep them honest by going backhand line, stepping up, mm-hmm. taking it early, that's sure. when my, yeah, that's when my best tennis comes and so certainly, you know, the offensive purposes of the down the line shot are fairly evident. Uh let's flip this or not flip this, I suppose, but you know, you talk about examples of players to who hit down the line well, who take balls early. Who are the people who stand out? to you because i have an example that i'm curious your thoughts on but let me know who you think of first you're saying on the tour right yeah well i mean i think every time you ask me a question like this i say roger but (laughs) obvious obviously in this one roger i mean the guy uh he takes the ball early so well that's the thing uh but they really all do stan hits it up the line tremendously well especially off his backhand side uh he I mean, there's not much to say. He just hits it so clean and so well uh, up the line. He just kind of sets up and lines it up. But 
I mean, really, all the, all those top guys do. Who, who did you have in mind? Well, so, yeah, you know, that's a good one. Del Potro forehand down the line, obvious. Um, mm-hmm. I think the Nadal backhand down the line might be his best shot. Their most underrated shot because he's so disciplined about, oh, you think you're going to hit your forehand cross court to my backhand? The joke's on you. I'm taking this backhand down the line. It's going to be elevated. You're not going to be able to attack it at all. And it's just the most disciplined shot, and he executes it so well. And by executing it, it opens up everything else for him. And you think you're going to be cute and take your backhand back to his backhand down the line. Then he steps in and rips a backhand cross court. I think his backhand Mm -hmm. down the line is, is, you know, a part— it him getting that shot has made him not undefeated, you know, unbeatable, sure. but that solidified every pattern in his playbook. Yeah, and you kind of touched on it. You he when he hits that backhand up the line, it is elevated, and that's what's mm-hmm. given Roger so many issues. That's that's intentional, you know. R- Rafa gets that backhand up the line, up high by Roger's shoulders, and then he really has no choice but to. I guess try and get it crossed to Rafa's forehand, which is a monster, or kind of bunt it up the line. That's not very a high percentage or comfortable. So, I mean, it's no mistake. The guy's one of the best ever uh, that that he does that so well. Yeah, and you know, the, again, t- because for Roger, he's the one-hander. To take that ball early down the line or early cross court and swing through it would be—it's maybe the most difficult shot to execute. You know, the inclination there is you almost have to slice it back cross court to the Rafa forehand. The counter is, you know, for Djokovic right now, you're in the Djokovic backhand strike zone, mm-hmm. and that's why he's uniquely built to beat Rafa. And it's why, you know, the three of them, the, the matchups between them all are all so fascinating because to beat Djokovic, you have to, you know, have some huevos and be willing to hit him off the court. And Rogers mm-hmm. maybe the only guy in history who's like, yeah, I'm better than Djokovic. I'll hit him off the court. That's fine. <laughs> uh, I can do that. And so, yeah, I mean, I was just curious your thought there because I agree. It's that discipline, right? It's the fact that going down the line isn't about the flash. It's just as much about the substance. Exactly. Exactly. You hit yeah. it. You hit it right on the head. There might have there to add go. that to the article. That <laughs> might be the uh, title of today's episode: Flash, not substance, or substance, not flash. Maybe, maybe flash, <laughs> not substance, is more fitting for me. Um, but yeah. So again, the article is three key factors of going down the line: an in-depth explanation, which all of you can find on mytennishq.com. Uh, Austin, any final thoughts on this article? No final thoughts. Just go check it out. And uh, I've got some diagrams there. So uh, without the diagrams, it's a little bit confusing. But yeah, just go check it out and try to learn a little bit. Mm-hmm. And for everyone who wants to see all the rest of the stuff going on in My Tennis HQ, what should they go to? Uh, you can find us MyTennisHQ.com for our website and then on Instagram and Twitter now at MyTennisHQ. And then we have uh, a bunch of videos on YouTube as well. Mm-hmm. One match, Stan Wawrinka plays Juan Martin Del Potro. They're both at their healthiest and best. Who wins? Slam final, Stan, but anywhere else, Del Po. <laughs> okay, I will take it. That's what we'll end on today. I had to throw one in there just to, you know, make, make let you know that I'm still healthy, that I'm still sane. I'm still thinking uh, about those I love sorts it. of things. I love those questions. We yeah, could, we could okay. do like a five-hour pod uh, on this stuff, but people would just get bored. Well, maybe not. Well, I guess we'll have to find out someday. But uh, Austin, thank you, as always, for taking the time to chat. Stay safe, stay healthy, and I know we'll see you again soon. All right, you got it. Thanks for having me on, Alex. I'll talk to you soon, man. Of course. Take it easy.
Hope all of you listeners enjoyed another edition of Technique Tuesday with our friends at My Tennis HQ. It's always a pleasure to talk to Austin, to talk with Carew. And of course, they're doing fantastic work. So seriously, go check out their website, mytennishq.com. I guarantee you, you guys will find content that you enjoy. And I know they would appreciate all of the support that they can get. And, you know, as a fellow independent tennis outlet, uh, we support our fellow uh, grinders out there. And they are certainly grinding away, trying to do their best to help raise the level of discord in, uh, discourse around tennis for professional tennis fans, those interested in the sport. So shout out to them and shout out to Austin once again as well for taking the time to chat. Uh, it's a busy week here at Crack Rackets. We're rocking and rolling with content, trying to fulfill all of your needs during this tennis, you know, professional tennis list, quarantine-filled time. And hopefully you've all enjoyed our work. If you haven't yet, I implore you, go check out our YouTube series. Uh, I promise you will find content you enjoy, whether it's over-served, our week we look at all the comedy that happens on tour, see our classics, our look at some of the best matches in tennis history. I'm excited to record a really fun see our classic later today. Uh, should I tell you guys the match? I won't tell you the match, but I'll tell you it's with Dennis Kudla, and I promise you all will enjoy it, so be on the lookout for that as well. And of course, if you've missed any of our content, go to our website, CrackedRackets.com. I've alluded to them a couple of times, but you know, on the Great Shot podcast, former ATP CEO Mark Miles, Sports Business Journal's Brett McCormick's on the inner workings of tennis as an organization. On the Cracked Interviews podcast, people like Alexa Graham, Ashley Leahy, Brianna Schvetz, Elliot Spaziri, Gianni Ross, Chris Woodruff from the College World, of course, Dennis Kudla, Mitchell Kruger, Christian, Claire Liu, Amy Frazier, uh, and Paul Anacone, and more from the professional tennis world as well. Uh, you can find all of those podcasts by like, rating, subscribing, reviewing Cracked Interviews podcast and the Great Shot podcast. Of course, here on the mini break last week, we spent all time breaking down uh, the next-gen ATP guys, how they've performed in their two respective careers thus far. I think those pods will hold up for the next couple of months till we get live tennis back. So certainly go listen to those if you have not yet. And of course, if you haven't, go check out our newest podcast, the Inside Out Podcast, our look, deep dive, narrative-based stories. Uh, the first story we tell, the story of American men's tennis during the open era, the highs, the lows, the best player in any given season. Uh, we think think you all will very much enjoy it because super producer Daniel Westoff has put his spin on it. So if you haven't, go check it out. Like, rate, subscribe, review, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Speaking of which, shout out to the super producers, Max Fligner and Daniel Westoff, who have a of an editing job to do as always and without whom this podcast would not be possible. Uh, but that'll do it for today's show. Shout out again to our friends at Midwest Sports. Be sure to go to MidwestSports.com. Use that promo code CR15 to get 15% off all of your orders. With that being said, though, for my wonderful guests, my Tennis HQ's Austin Rapp, our super producers, Max Fliegner and Daniel Westoff, and all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say, folks. That's the break, and we'll see you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone.